0: Welcome everyone, you are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Depending on where you run into certain individuals from time to time, you might have an interaction with someone who doesn't see the Bible like you do. right? There's so many people who do not consider the Bible to be infallible, inerrant, and the authoritative word of God. And, And at best, they might consider it to be a fable, a myth, a fairy tale, or just some collection of stories that have a good meaning, right, or some inspirational message. And I think one of the reasons that keeps people from accepting Scripture as absolute truth, and maybe you've been there at some point in your faith journey, or maybe you're there right now. This is how you see Scripture. But I think one of the reasons that keeps people from accepting Scripture as absolute truth is that some of the stories, some of the accounts that we see in Scripture seem unbelievable. right? They'll come across a story where a bunch of people are marching around this wall for multiple days and then on the seventh day, they all just kind of like yell and blow trumpets and the walls fall down. They're like, what's that about? Like how did that happen? Or they'll come across this story where this guy, he's on a boat and, and something's going on and he's the reason for this storm. And, and so then they throw him overboard, and this guy gets swallowed by this massive fish, and not only that, he survives it. And he lives inside this fish for three days, and then after that, he gets vomited up on shore and, and continues to carry out the, the instructions that God has given him. Like, for real? Like, I'm supposed to believe that? And, and you just see these similar questions, or you might have had similar questions about various aspects of the Bible And those who question the reliability of Scripture, their questions often extend to the Christmas story as well. It's like, wait, so you're telling me that this woman, Mary, is pregnant, but she's a virgin. Okay. And not only that, you're telling me that this this baby that she's supposed to have is, is God's son. And not only that, you are expecting me to believe that a few years later, there was this star in the sky that... Led the way from these three dudes to find this kid. A while later, like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. And and we see that these extraordinary aspects of the Christmas story are just too much for some people. But last week we kicked off this Christmas series, and it's called Why Christmas. And we learned that what makes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus believable is that the. Uh, This entire story is so unbelievably remarkable. You see, most of us here in America have seen the movie A Charlie Brown Christmas. And therefore, we're familiar with the biblical Christian story of Christmas, right? Because Linus, he gets up on stage and he quotes Luke 2, 1 to 20. Quick side note, if you've never seen the movie, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? It's It's a classic, it's 30 minutes, it's afternoon, Take care of business. Watch it, all right? Come on. But we're familiar with it, right? If if not for that reason, for some other reason. We know the Christmas story. However, we learned last Sunday that the Christmas story doesn't begin in Luke 2, right? It it doesn't begin in the New Testament. In fact, it doesn't begin with this couple trying to figure out how they got pregnant and where they're going to have their baby. And It really begins with this elderly couple wondering if they're ever going to have a baby. You see, 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God appears to Abraham and he makes him a promise. And we find that promise in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 of Genesis. And God says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You see, and ultimately, this promise is fulfilled through Christmas, the coming of Jesus. The world needed Christmas. Now, if you happen to miss last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to week one. Get caught up. You can jump on the website, lifepoint.org. Find the message there. Or if you're a podcaster, you can jump on your podcast, wherever platform you use, and just type in Lifepoint L Grove, and you can get caught up on this series but this morning as we continue our teaching series we're not only going to see that the world needed christmas but that god needed christmas too and i realize that sounds a little bit strange right like god needed christmas like well well, what does that mean like why did god need christmas and that's the question that we're going to try to answer during our time together this morning but to discover that answer we're not going to start With the New Testament Christmas stories. And you could argue that the answer to this question of why God needed Christmas can be found in multiple scripture passages throughout the entire Bible. But we're going to start by looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to open up there. If you're on your phone, you can navigate there in your Bible app. Galatians chapter 3, Verses 26 through 29, and Paul is writing here, and this is what he has to say. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." Now, these are the final three verses of this particular chapter. However, they essentially provide this snapshot of all that God desired to bring about since the very beginning. It's this culmination of everything that took place in the Old Testament. It's all leading up to this. It's all pointing to this being a relationship with Jesus by faith that allows everyone to become a son or a child of God. Cultural and societal and gender distinctions no longer matter when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus. Those who have put their faith and trust in him are in line to receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And Paul makes this abundantly clear earlier in chapter 3 when you see verse 14. This is what Paul writes. He, Jesus, Redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, non-Jews, through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. To say it another way or to summarize, these verses reveal God's ultimate plan. His desire for all of us to have this restored relationship with us, his people. To adopt us into his family as his children. But while this is the vision that's presented to us, and again, we see this throughout Scripture. It's not just here in Galatians chapter 3. We see that that this is God's desire for us uh, through all of the Bible. But one question that is is left unanswered is, how? Right? Like, okay, if this is the vision that God has for us in Galatians chapter 3, he wants this restored relationship with us. He wants to adopt us into his family so that we can become his children. Well, how is he going to make that possible. And we find the answer to that question in the very next chapter, in the first few verses. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Allow me to read these verses for us. Paul writes, What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children... We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. See, here Paul is using this illustration. He's using this illustration about sonship or or being a child and also how inheritance worked in that culture to make his point. And we're going to break this passage down together. It starts in verses 1 and 2. And we learn that children in that particular culture, even though they were in line to receive the full estate of their father, as children... They basically had the same access to the inheritance from their father's estate as a slave. Until this appointed time set by their father, the child was unable to lay claim to the inheritance. In verse 3, Paul begins to set up the point he's trying to make by drawing this parallel between children in that culture and the period of time when the Jews were under the authority of the Old Testament law. And according to Paul, during this period of time when the Jews were under the authority of the law, the Jews were like children waiting to receive their full inheritance. You see, the the laws, the, the governing authorities, if you will, that God instituted, they couldn't fully bring about their rights as children of God. And Paul goes on to say that during this period of the Old Testament law, the Israelites were enslaved to the basic principles of the world. And it can be somewhat difficult to understand what Paul means or what he's talking about here. But one commentator suggests that he's looking back to the previous chapter, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25, where he highlights the shortcomings of the Old Testament law, which are its sin-revealing purpose. The law and its temporal limitations. It wasn't meant for all eternity, but just for a set period of time. Its inferior status because of its need for mediation. There was a need uh, for a mediator, someone to go between God and his people. It was insufficient because of its inability to bring life and its imprisoning functions. And so for as long or as long as the Israelites remain as Children remain under the authority of the Old Testament law, they will be subject to these negative features of the law. But then something significant happens in verse 4. And Paul begins by writing, But when the time had fully come, when the time had fully come, You see, just like children in this culture had to wait for the appointed time set by their father to receive their full inheritance, now this appointed time for the Jews to receive their full inheritance has arrived. And Paul goes on to write, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. About this passage, Paul, uh, one of the commentators writes this, God sent his son so that the inheritance could be had. God sent his son, and this son lived under the law, though not under sin, so that he could absorb the curse of the law, exhaust the fumes of God's wrath, and redeem those under the law. And once the son had done this, the barrier was knocked down between God and people, And they could become sons of God. Paul also talks a little bit about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And we won't read it right now, but this brings us back to the question well, why did God send Jesus? Or, in other words, why did God need Christmas? You see, God needed Christmas in order to accomplish what the law was incapable of doing. He needed Christmas to do what the Old Testament sacrificial system was incapable of doing, satisfying, fully satisfying God's wrath and need for justice. God needed Christmas because sending Jesus to earth would eventually pave the way for reconciliation, a restored relationship between God and his people. And everything Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29, about that we can be adopted as his children and that we're heirs of the promise. None of that is possible without Christmas. None of that is possible unless God sends Jesus to earth. Now, if that weren't enough, God used Christmas to accomplish even more. You see, when the time had fully come, that time that Paul references in Galatians 4.4, 4, God was ready to do something personal for you, for me, and for all mankind. See, he wanted a relationship with us. He wanted to make the way for us to become his children to be adopted into his family he was ready to move individual people into a personal relationship with himself but in order to accomplish something so personal god knew that he would it would require him to act relationally in order to do something personally he knew that he was going to have to act relationally he knew he would have to come To us. But we know the story doesn't end with Jesus simply being sent to earth. Right? Approximately 33 years later, God's love is on display once again. 33 years after Jesus arrives on the scene. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God wanted to demonstrate, to show us, to prove to us just how much he was for us and just how much he loves us. He wanted his love to be on display so that no one could deny it. And Romans 5.8 is an amazing verse, and it carries significance for each and every one of us. But I can't help but think what must have been going through Paul's mind when he wrote those words. You see, if you're familiar with the story of Paul, you know that back, back in the book of Acts that we know Paul by a different name. His name is Saul. And prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, he did everything in his power to stop the spread of Christianity. He did absolutely everything he could to snuff out this movement of people known as the way. He was just trying to put some of them to death. Acts 9.1 says, while Paul was still breathing out his murderous threats, this guy was going for blood. He was going to do everything he could to smash this movement. But at some point, at some point, he comes to the realization that Jesus still died for him despite his sin and his active, and how he was actively opposed to Christianity. This must have been an overwhelming thought. You see, God knew that Paul was going to be this one-man wrecking crew that was trying to destroy the church. But Jesus still died for him. And the same is true for you and me. Now, granted, our story might look a little bit different than Paul's. Perhaps you don't have this active or it wasn't part of your story to have this active plan of opposition towards Christianity. And maybe you didn't have a Christian hit list. Hopefully not. Right? But, but wherever we're at, the reality is we're still sinners. We've all done at least one thing. And if we're being real, the list is very, very long of all the things that we've done that don't fall in line with the way that God wants us to live our lives. And yet that did not stop him from dying for us. It's an incredible demonstration of how much God is for us and how much he loves us. But have you ever wondered, did Jesus really have to die? Like, like did, he, did he really have to die? Like, we know that's how the story plays out, but, but wasn't there any other way to accomplish what God wanted to do and to restore this relationship? Like, wasn't there any other way to fulfill what God, Paul, through Paul, talks about in Galatians chapter 3 of being adopted into his family? Like, like couldn't Jesus just show up on the scene and be like, hey, everyone, I want you all to know that I love you And you know what, I'm feeling generous today, so all of your sins are forgiven. Like, he's God. Why why couldn't he just say it and boom, it's done? Did he really have to die? And the answer is yes, for a number of reasons. See, most importantly, from a theological standpoint, and and I briefly referenced this a bit earlier, Jesus had to die to satisfy God's need for justice. The forgiveness of sin requires the shedding of blood. And in the Old Testament, this was accomplished through animal sacrifices, but that was always meant to be a temporary solution. And so Jesus' death on the cross is what paid for our sins in full and eliminated the need for blood sacrifices. And we see this truth communicated in Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. John reiterates this truth in the New Testament. He writes, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Another reason Jesus had to die. And couldn't just show up on the scene and declare and pronounce, Hey, everyone! You are forgiven. Is because people wouldn't have believed him. We wouldn't have believed him. In fact, we have evidence of that very truth in the Gospels. In, Ma- in, in Mark chapter two, Jesus finds himself at his house and he's and he's this house and he's literally teaching to a packed house. Right? It's completely full. And not only that, there's a crowd of people outside trying to get in. they're all pressing closer just to hear what Jesus has to say. And and eventually, eventually these four guys show up on the scene. And they're carrying their buddy on a mat. And he's paralyzed. And they've heard enough about Jesus to know we need to get our friend to Jesus. Because if anybody can do anything for him, it's got to be this guy. Like, we've heard enough about him. We have to do whatever we can to get him in front of Jesus. They arrive, though, and there's a ton of people. What do we do now? But desperate to get him in front of Jesus, they go up onto this roof of a stranger's house and begin to start digging a hole in this stranger's roof, right? Probably a little bit easier of a feat than today's how we build houses here in, in America. But still, they're digging a hole through someone else's roof. And they begin to lower their friend on a mat in front of Jesus. And in response to their faith-filled actions, Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Huh? Like, the friends on the roof were probably like, yo, that's cool and all, but like we were trying to play five on five, can you just heal them? Like, we just wanted you to heal them. Like, what do you mean you're forgiving his sins? Like." We just want our buddy to be able to play. We just want to go hang out. Like, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? What are we doing here, Jesus? Just kind of wanted him to be able to walk. We're tired of carrying him. But Jesus, what he says, man, that that ticked off the religious rulers who were in the room. These guys start freaking out. Because, hold on, hold on, this guy's not supposed to have the authority to forgive sins. That's a God thing. Like, only God can forgive sins. So, like, who is this dude just showing up saying, hey, your sins are forgiven? Like, on whom's authority? Like, right? Who who are you, man, just to be forgiving people of their sins? And Jesus knows their objections in their heart of hearts, and so he responds by saying, which is easier? To say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, Jesus meant for this to be a rhetorical question. But what is the answer? I mean, it's, it's so much easier to tell someone, hey, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that doesn't require any tangible proof. Like, you can't see if anything actually happened. Like, did he actually forgive the guy's sins like I don't know it's like my kids tell me their tummy hurts I'm like okay throw up and prove it you know like I, I don't know like dad my head hurts well like let, let me come over here I'll smack you upside and then I'll know for sure you know I, I don't know like I don't know and so the same is true here like if he just says hey your sins are forgiven like all right prove it we don't know so it's so much more difficult to say hey get up and walk because everybody's going to see that what if it doesn't happen And so Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And so he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And and this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like this. You see, eventually, they all believed that Jesus could forgive sins. But they had to see it first. They had to see it first. They weren't just going to take Jesus at his word. Mm -mm. They had to see it first. And we're the same. We wouldn't have believed him if he just told us. Another reason that Jesus had to die is because actions speak louder than words. You see, it's one thing to say something, but it's another thing to back it up with action. And this is certainly true when it comes to our faith, isn't it? James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's one thing for all of us to sit here and say, I have faith. But genuine faith is one that you can see. It doesn't save us, actions don't save us, but is the evidence of faith. See, God wants us to understand how much. He loves us. And it's one thing to say, I love you. But it hits on a whole different level when you can show it. And what's the best way to demonstrate or to communicate or to show or to prove that you love someone? Through sacrifice. John chapter 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends And that's exactly what God did for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice, this this demonstration of his love for us. For God so loved the world. How do we know? Because he gave. Because he gave. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He sacrificed everything for you and for me. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, so what? What does this have to do with my life right now? I recognize that some of you are here this morning or maybe you're watching online and, and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. You're not yet a Christian. And maybe you're checking it out. Or you're exploring the things of faith. Who's Jesus and what is Christianity all about? Frankly, maybe you just got bribed here. You know, like you were trying to be nice. It's Christmas. At least we got food today, right, outside the lobby. So hit that up. But whatever the case, right, this morning has hopefully helped to reveal to you that that God does love you. He does love you. And maybe you weren't convinced of that before, but now you know. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever been told that God loves you. See, if that's where you're at this morning, let me tell you the best way to respond by taking you back to the verse that I just started to read, John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world, put your name in there. For God so loved you that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God made this incredible sacrifice for you because he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to put your faith in Jesus so that you can receive this gift of eternal life. But the only way you can receive this gift is to have a relationship with God and that happens through a relationship with Jesus because the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. You can't be good enough. No other religion will help get you there. It's Jesus or bust. You want to talk about intolerant? Yeah, Jesus is intolerant. One way, one way, that's it. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. So if you've begun to understand how much God loves you, and if you're ready to give him your life, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. And it's not the exact words that I say, but this is more so a prayer that you can genuinely mean in your heart, allowing you to express your faith in Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and right from where you are, you can simply repeat these words after me. Say something like this. Let's pray. God, I know that you want to have a relationship with me, that you love me. God, I want to have a relationship with you too. But I know that my sin has gotten in the way. Thank you for sending Jesus who died in my place and who rose again to be my Savior. I now turn to Jesus to rescue me from my sin by placing my faith in him alone for forgiveness and eternal life. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, and you've been adopted by God, you're part of his family, you are a child of God, and and we simply want to celebrate that decision with you. And you can simply let us know by texting the word CONNECTING to nine four zero zero zero, And then after you hit that link, you're going to see a button that says, I accepted Christ today. We'd be able to love to follow up with you and and help you grow in your new faith. Now, I know many of you sitting in this room, you've already put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so you might be wondering, "Well, well, what about me? How does this affect my life today? And this morning serves as a reminder of the great lengths that God went to to demonstrate his love for us. And of course, we can never repay him back for the sacrifice that he made of sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place. However, we can follow God's example when it comes to demonstrating our love for others. And as Christians, this begins with loving one another. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now this is significant, right? This is significant because the primary way by which the world will know that we're followers of Jesus is by how we treat other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the primary way. You see, God knew, or have you guys ever stopped to think about why we sometimes refer to Christians as as our brothers and sisters? feels a little churchy sometimes, right? But the reason we do that is because once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we've been adopted by God into his family. We become his children, which means we're all siblings. And one thing we know about families is that they're a little dysfunctional, Right? The holidays are our yearly reminder of that. And and so you have God who knew exactly what he was doing by emphasizing the importance of us loving one another in the family of God and how that would serve as evidence to a watching world that we do things differently. He knew that our if our relationship with Jesus didn't make a difference in the way we treat one another, then there would be no hope for anyone on the outside looking in to have any interest whatsoever of joining another dysfunctional family, right? No one's like, yeah, sign me up for more of that, please. No one's doing that. And so what do we have to do? We have to love one another well. And so how are you doing when it comes to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we loving each other well? Are you caring for needs when you're made aware of them? Are you coming alongside those who are hurting to encourage them and lift them up? This is how we demonstrate our love for one another. But what about when our brothers and sisters in Christ annoy us a little bit, right? Not that that would ever happen here. But what happens then? Like what what happens when we disagree about something? When we're in conflict with one another, are we going to love well and go to that person directly and talk through it? Or are we just going to run our mouths behind their back? Leave church, go grab lunch, and just talk about people. What are we going to do? are we going to extend grace and forgiveness and give people the benefit of the doubt? You see, our desire is to be a church that loves one another well. And of course, we're going to have our fair share of dysfunction because we're family. Right? But how we respond in those situations will be what makes a difference to a watching world. We not only need to demonstrate our love for one another, but we also need to demonstrate our love for those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. In Mark 12, 31, he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And so how are you doing when it comes to loving those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, who aren't yet Christians? Recently, we've been talking a lot about being intentional introducers. Being intentional about building relationships with those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus in the hopes that we might be able to introduce them to Jesus. And as intentional introducers, we've been encouraging you to do three things. Lift up, link with, and love on. We want you to lift up people in prayer, those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, those who aren't yet Christians, and be praying for them. And you can be praying along with us. We have a daily prayer calendar that you can follow along and pray with us. For those who are lost, you can go to lifepoint.org 31days, or you can pick up an info, the calendar at the info wall outside. You can pray along with us. But we've also been encouraging you to link with. Take what you're already doing, what's already on your calendar, what you already have planned and invite someone who doesn't know Jesus to come along with you and begin to intentionally build relationships with them. And then finally, what we've been talking about today, we've encouraged you to love on. Like God did for us, demonstrate our love for others. You see, Far more than our views on politics, abortion, LGBTQ+, immigration, or whatever other hot button issue you want to talk about. People who don't know Jesus don't need to know what we think about that. They need to know that we love God and we love them. That's it. They need to know that we love God and we love them. And until you've demonstrated that, They don't need to know what you believe. They already do. We've been running our mouths for a long time. We need to stop doing that and love people. Right? The time will come. We can have hard conversations, grace and truth in love. The time will always come for that. But you'll never have an opportunity if you don't love them first. Love God. Love them. Until they know that. Until you've demonstrated that to them. They don't need to know what you believe about all the other stuff. All right? God demonstrating his love for us. And that's what we're called to do as well. Remember, it's one thing to say it, but it hits on a whole different level when we can show it. And I'm so glad that Christmas was part of God's plan. That he sent Jesus in order to make a way for us to become children of God. And as his children, my hope and prayer is that we'll look like our father. That we'll demonstrate love for our family, our siblings, and for those who are not yet part of the family of God. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.